Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I'm your host, Dwayne Mancini. As always, if you need anything from the podcast or would like to suggest a future guest, please email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. This is another episode of MedTech Money powered by Project MedTech. This is a special series by Project MedTech where we have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Loricella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. Giovanni's guest today is Thomas Busby from Outcome Capital. In this episode, Giovanni and Tom discuss what an investment banker can do for a MedTech startup, how they can help work strategics, the life of investment banker, the minimum raise an investment banker will get involved in, and more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Tom Busby. Thank you very much for your time and being on MedTech Money, this podcast series, which is powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And the reason why we're here is we've talked to thousands of MedTech entrepreneurs and investors around the world. And what I've discovered is that there's no real silver bullet or specific formula about how to raise or invest capital in MedTech. So my goal here was I would like to extract insights and anecdotal stories from entrepreneurs, investors investment bankers like yourself to help those who can benefit from this information and from what I imagine generations of professionals, investors, and entrepreneurs to come. And so I think the audience that's going to be listening into this is going to be certainly a mixture of both experts and novices. And what I wanted to do was extract your stories, insights, and advice so that we can share with what I imagine that first-time founder or CEO who has no clue of what lies ahead of them on their fundraising journey. And I thought the best place to start here would be learning from experienced professionals like yourself. So the reason why you and I are here today, and I'm very excited to have you on this show, is because I wanted to have an in-depth understanding of if I am a med tech startup, what does the role of an investment banker mean to me, both in early stages and later stages? And I wanted to flush that out from your experience. So that's, that's the purpose of why we're here. And we're going to jump into a few open-ended questions that I have for you, and then certainly learn more about who you are, and I'll spoil it, but who Outcome Capital is. So the first one is, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a medtech startup? Why or why not? And is there anything important that I'm missing? So first, Giovanni, I want to thank you for having me on today's show. Uh, it's, it's, it's a great opportunity to connect with you and to connect with entrepreneurs in the space. You know, it's a funny thing, though, by career designation, I'm an investment banker. Uh, you know, if I go to dinner or something, someone asks me, what industry are you in? I say I'm in life sciences, I'm in med tech. It's the industry that I really identify with. Um, you know, in terms of, of a company being, you know, the people and, and the capital, and, and that's really the drivers, I would add one more element to that, and that's really the vision. I think that for any entrepreneur, having a vision of what they want their technology and their company to evolve into it requires people and it requires capital, um, but it's that leadership and the vision of here's how we're going to fit in the world and here's how we're going to enhance patient outcomes, I think, that needs to be a cornerstone 
really of any medtech so in addition to that, then I, I want to roll into how you got that perspective, which will flush out even further. But if you knew now what you know about being an investment banker, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Or what would you do differently? Yeah, so I have to say, I'm, I'm one of those few people, I think, in the world that can truly say that they love what they do. <laughs> and, um, and I really am passionate about what I do. Um, I'm passionate about the clients that, that we bring into Outcome Capital. Um, I'm excited and proud of the outcomes that we've been a part of. Um, you know, myself, I've always loved to, to, to try to help people and to try to help them solve problems. And I think that really at the root of, of investment banking, it's people that like to help people um, and, and they like to solve complex problems. And so me, um, you know, I love what, what we do. I think it's hard to find a career that really sort of speaks to all of the different talents and aptitudes and interests that a person has. And uh, I'm happy to say, though, though the hours might be long some days, investment banking is certainly a career that, you know, you really get to exercise all of your passion from finance, strategy, to entrepreneurship, to relationship building. Um, you know, it's exciting in that way and that I think it really touches on all the different elements of, of being a business person. And, uh, and that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. And I love having fun with this particular question, but there's usually a story behind what's in a name or a name. What does outcome capital mean or signify? How did it even come about? Yeah, so um, outcome capital actually has a pretty interesting story. It was a merger actually of two investment banking groups, Boston Equity Advisors here in the Boston area that was focusing on life sciences and WWC Capital down in Reston, Virginia, focusing on government services and technology. And the two firms came together about 10 years now, realizing that uh, technology and life sciences were more and more coming into each other and getting into bed with each other. And so the idea with Outcome Capital was really to focus on our clients and focus on the outcomes they wanted to achieve, whether that be uh, you know, an exit event in terms of an M&A or partnership event, whether it was raising capital. We try to work from the end game backwards to figure out what is our strategy. And so with our clients, you know, we really do embrace the mantra of what's the outcome that we all want to achieve. And then let's back calculate, how do we get there? And so I think for those groups that have been clients of outcome, they would say, you know, we are laser focused on what outcome of the transaction do you want to be had? And, uh, and let's focus our time and attention and, and efforts there. So then moving into who you are as now that we know how the name of outcome capital came to be let's get to the story behind the voice who is tom busby where'd you come from and then how did you end up becoming vice president of outcome capital so um when i got into investment banking i actually went out for dinner with a uh, senior managing director at another um bulge bracket investment banking group totally different industry as well he's a tech banker and, um, and he said, you know, Tom, there's really two flavors of bankers in the world. There's those people that came out of the womb knowing I was meant to be an investment banker and they focused their whole life <clears throat> on really achieving that goal. And then there's people who haphazardly through a series of fortunate or unfortunate events, you know, came to be a banker. And, um, and I fall into that second category. Uh, investment banking and, and working in finance actually was never really on the radar for me. Uh, when I was contemplating a, a career move, um, it was through a, a series of fantastic introductions that I got to be here. So 
Um, by training, I'm an MBA. Going further back, I actually have a degree in philosophy of all things. And so uh, when I went into college, I, I really enjoyed politics. I enjoyed talking with people. And again, I enjoyed serving people and solving problems. And so um, when I talked to, to people about, you know, what kind of career does that line up to? The feedback I got was, you should be a lawyer. You should be an attorney. And at the time, philosophy majors scored second highest on the LSAT. Um, math majors, curiously enough, were number one. Um, I didn't really want to focus four years on math, so I defaulted to philosophy and really came to love the discipline. Uh, it's still a part of my life today. Um, after graduating degree in philosophy and starting out at law school, I actually realized very quickly, no part of me wanted to be an attorney. It was much more contentious than I had expected. Um, you know, these are my own opinions. I don't mean to offend any attorneys that might be listening, but it just wasn't the rich intellectual pursuit that I had kind of hoped it would be. And so I went back to, to friends and mentors and said, all right, so, you know, here I am a guy with a degree in philosophy. You know, what, what kind of career paths are there? Because I don't see many philosophers wanted second to the world. And the feedback I got was, you know, listen, Tom, you're at a unique point in your life because you don't really have debt that you need to worry about. You don't have a family that you need to provide for. And if you like serving people and helping people, then why don't you actually look at, at maybe the nonprofit industry? And so that was actually where I started my career. Um, I was a fundraiser and an operator. At the time, I had a bit of an ethical belief that the world's greatest travesty would be for a child uh, who could be the world's next greatest thinker to never realize their potential just because they didn't have access to good education. And so um, I spent a number of years raising capital for nonprofit uh, educational groups. Uh, I am enormously proud of, of kind of starting my career there. After doing that for a number of years, I got to a point where I said, you know, um, I would like to, to start a family and do all those things that you start to think about a few years into a career. And I just wasn't quite sure that the nonprofit industry would be able to provide for me in the way that I thought. Went back to my network again, asked for advice. They you know, suggested you should look at business school to really equip you, you know, kind of the fundamental skill set that you need, and you can taste the rainbow of different career pathways to undergo. Um, it was at the end of my first year of business school, actually, that I had a professor um, share with me that there was uh, an investment banking group, Outcome Capital, that was looking to hire, and they had uh, an open mind about who that person should be. They wanted someone who was multidimensional someone who was a creative and strategic thinker, someone who excelled at value communication, for lack of a better phrase. Um, and that was when I met the two uh, founders of our life science practice here, Arnie Friedman and Odette and Joseph. Uh, we hit it off pretty quickly. And the idea really was, you know, Tom, if you are so good at raising capital for hopes and dreams and good feelings, I have to imagine that, you know, if we give you a life-saving technology that you're going to do pretty well. And so there's a little bit of trust in, 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 in bringing me on board there. Um, on a personal note, though, it was also at this time that um, my father actually fell quite ill. And it was my first time spending a good amount of my life in a hospital room. And I think that before you have a, a family member um, go into the hospital, we kind of have this idea that they're going to be taken care of. We have a great healthcare system, which we do. But you still need someone at the patient's bedside. And it was sitting by my father looking around this hospital room that I said to myself, every piece of technology here is like 20 years old. How can this be? So I'm excited about uh, you know, cloud computing. I'm excited about remote sensors and that, that need next to no battery. 
uh, power to operate. And so it was really actually the confluence of these things of my saying, you know, I think that there, I'd love to start a career in life sciences to make an impact on patients and to improve patient care. And realizing that, you know, there was an investment banking group focusing in life sciences that needed someone kind of with my skill set. Um, so I've been now with the firm for, for a number of years. It's been a wonderful ride. Uh, I'm very happy and proud to say I work with people who are not only some of the most talented uh, individuals I think out there, what they do, but they're also truly good human beings who I love to spend time with. Uh, so I've been very fortunate of having a few of these things break my way, but, um, but I think like a lot of people in med tech and the industry, it was that personal experience that kind of hooked me into state. That idea of, you know, I had a loved one who, who you know, had this incident and, um, and I want to make a difference. I'm happy to say my dad's doing fantastic now. I, I'd be remiss if I weren't to share that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was that kind of personal experience that, that kind of pointed my nose at, you know, my mission now is making sure that there isn't a life-changing or life-enhancing technology that doesn't reach the patient, not because of, of it's not great data, but because of bad business decisions. And that's really why we exist, is to help entrepreneurs make sure that you can focus on the data, focus on the patients, let us help you avoid, you know, some rookie mistakes, let's just say, in terms of putting a business around the technology. So I'm glad to hear that your father's doing well, first and foremost, and thank you for the, the background information. And tying this all together, tell us about Outcome Capital, now that you're there, and we now know that it is a life science focused investment firm, uh, investment banking firm. Give the, the fuller picture of, of what you can. Who, who is Outcome Capital? How long have they been around? Just the story so we know who they are, who you are. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Outcome, Outcome Capital has been around for about 10 years now. Like I mentioned, we focus in technology and life sciences in terms of the industries that we serve. Um, our Boston office focuses exclusively in life sciences. And we really try to focus on four verticals there. So you've got biopharma, medical devices, diagnostics, and life science services. And on the services end, think more so about uh, CROs, let's say, uh, pharma services, bioprocessing facilities, and, and the like. Um, we don't do a lot of healthcare. We really do stay in life sciences. Um, as a denominator to those four verticals would be a variety of different digital assets from uh, digital therapeutics to digital biomarkers to artificial intelligence diagnostics. You know, we really see digital technologies sort of upending the norms in all four of those verticals. Um, we offer three uh, products as they're called in the industry to our clients. First one is gonna be merger and acquisition advisory. Second one is gonna be capital raising advisory. And the third is sort of generalized 360 degree advisory services with the intent being finding what is the best fit transactions for this client. Um, I think a great example of sort of the work that we do can be found in the clients we work with. Uh, the first deal I worked on when I came on into the group uh, was Coherence Medical. This was a structural heart device that we sold the company to Johnson & Johnson. The interesting there, thing there, you know, for a banker like us is, in, for most investment bankers, value is a product of revenue and EBITDA multiples. And yet in med tech, you know, our, our currency here is good data. Can you really prove a patient impact? And so it differentiates outcome from, I'd say, the herd of investment banks out there is our people. 
we have more uh, uh, former CEOs, operators, PhDs, MDs, master's level scientists, former venture capitalists um, in our banker ranks than sort of your traditional standard fare MBA Wall Street types. And so we go deep and wide in terms of assessing and understanding a company's technology in the marketplace, while also being able to do you know, all the financial uh, gymnastics and metrics that you'd expect a bank to do. And it's being able to traverse the, the clinical side and the financial side, that's what we're really able to, to, to focus on with our investors and the buyers that we work with. So an ideal client for us, by way of another example, um, we represented GeneFoc in their sale to Meridian. This was a company that had recently launched an in vitro diagnostic uh, point of care device. Um, they had a limited revenue profile of around a million dollars. Um, and, and Meridian uh, took them down for a very high multiple there. But it was in selling, again, the strategy and the vision, I think, that triggered Meridian's interest more than anything. So that's where we focus, value communication for our entrepreneurs. So breaking down the services and also the types of clients and companies that you work with, so the audience can hear, especially for that early stage medtech startup, when we think about investment banking, what, where is the bulk of the focus? Is a lot of it the actual raising of capital for companies, or is a lot of it steered towards the back end of how to put deals together, M&A, licensing deals, et cetera? So I think any good investment banker is going to be able to offer you two things. First and foremost, an investment banker is an advisor. It's someone who has see, uh, seen it and done it, someone who knows how to put deals together, someone that knows how to market your company, knows how to attract interest from investors or from buyers. Um, but it's really that advisor role that, that we play. The other side of, of what a banker I think is gonna offer is execution in terms of being able to develop target lists for buyers and investors, package the company in a way that's gonna be attractive to those buyers and investors and execute on your behalf. Um, you know, by way of example, we're working with a, a client right now that, that has an LOI in place, so we're in the midst of due diligence. Uh, for any uh, entrepreneur out there that's undergone a due diligence process in an M&A, knows it can be one of the most arduous, challenging uh, uh, things you can deal with. And so if you're an entrepreneur that's trying to run the business on one end and is trying to raise capital or sell the business on the other end, I, I just don't know how a management can take on all that work without losing sight of the business or the transaction. And so that's where the execution side of the bank really comes in. So for a younger entrepreneur, or I'm sorry, for, for an entrepreneur in the space with a younger company, um, we're there to really be the, the corporate development, business development function role for that middle market company. I want, you mentioned a very important topic. I've read about this I've never been part of the process, so I, I can't truly wrap my head around it, but I, it sounds very arduous. I'll use your word. Um, but in the due diligence process, whether it's for M&A or for even an intense large capital raise for a later stage company, maybe doing a crossover or something like that, what, what is the due diligence process like? Very high level. I mean, I know that it can be distracting of the operations team to actually run the organization, which is the added benefit of having professionals like yourself come in and take over that baton for them and truly help them out. But yep. what, what is a typical due diligence process? We'll break it into two um, of a larger capital raise look like and 
an M&A deal look like? How long do they take typically? How arduous does it is? And you can break it out into major segments just to give some flavor. So Giovanni, that's a fantastic question because if there's one thing that I find uh, many first-time entrepreneurs don't appreciate is how long the capital raising process takes from start to end. And that includes due diligence. So, uh, and it's the same thing on the M&A front. So I'd say this, if you're a CEO out there thinking, I know, you know, in a year, I need to finish a capital raise to keep the company going, then you want to start today. Typically, you're looking, you know, to close a transaction, whether it's M&A or capital raise, you're looking at six to nine months on average. Some of them are, will, will happen a little bit faster than that. Others will take a little bit longer. But, um, you know, if you look at an average, that's what you're looking at. So let's walk through that process. So your first phase is marketing the opportunity, whether it's M&A or it's investment. You start to market the opportunity to, uh, to your buyers and investors. And so for us at Outcome, we take sort of a soft sell approach um, where, we, where we will package the company and we try to be very specific with each buyer. Here's where we think the strategy is particular to you. And so for CEOs, that's one thing I think that they can really focus on is your value is going to differ buyer to buyer, investor to investor. So if you're going to a buyer, let's say, and you have a purple artery device, and the company that you're trying to sell yourself to also has a bunch of purple artery devices, then there it's a, hey, you already have the sales channel. This is a new tool in the bag, and this is why you're going to want to buy. And the opposite end, let's say it's a, a, a corporation, a strategic that really doesn't have that sales channel. And they're saying, we're, and we go to them and we'll say, you know, we think that you could get aggressive and start to penetrate this market with this technology. So what's the takeaway here when it comes to M&A? It's the byproduct of two things fear or greed. And so, and so for your entrepreneurs that are looking at the exit, think about your buyers and, and how do you help them? Or if your technology fell into someone else, how does it hurt them? And you're going to do the same thing with your investors, explaining in that marketing phase, here's our value to the market. Once you start to trigger some interest is where you might start to collect some LOIs, and that's going to have pricing information and information too on the diligence process. Typically at that point, you're, you know, most strategics and investors are going to say, we anticipate a 60 to 90 day diligence process. And in that diligence process, you're going to have investors and buyers look soup to nuts at everything in the company. Um, you don't need to be audited, but your financials should be reviewed if possible. You're going to want to take a look at all of your IP. You're going to want to make sure that all of your corporate documentation is buttoned up nicely so that if you're trying to put in an investment, your cap table is, 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 is looking nice. Um, you have all the security documents in place. Um, and, and that's really sort of the first piece of diligence is making sure the company is ready to transact. After that, you're gonna see diligence really focused on your technology. Um, what's the IP around the technology? What's the stage of the technology? What does the data look like? And, and perhaps most importantly, why do you believe that this technology is going to be you know, 10x better than what's in the marketplace today? And that's, I think, what you're gonna find a lot of groups doing diligence on is to validate the claims that you made when you were selling the opportunity. So if you said you know, our, our surgical adhesive is 20 times stronger than the next product on market, an investor is gonna say, prove it. It's not that they don't believe you, they want to believe you. 
but you need to give them proof. And that's what you're going to have in diligence. And so for investors and so for entrepreneurs out there, you really need to be careful when you're selling the opportunity that you can substantiate those claims. So one pitfall I see, and, and I'll say this, digital is a wonderful thing. There are a lot of companies now that say, oh, we're going to incorporate some AI elements into the technology. All right, well, that begs the question, well, what is your regulatory pathway? Have you thought about that? Um, the FDA is open to AI devices, but you can't just say we're going to do AI. That doesn't make sense. And investors want to know what's the real strategy. here. And so you got to be careful and prudent about, you know, what buzz terms you include in your pitch. Because you only have the opportunity to make, you know, a first time introduction once. And that's where investors will, you know, they'll meet you. If they find out that what you were selling isn't true to what you have, it's unlikely they'll pick up the phone again. Whereas if you pitch an investor and they find out, hey, I really like the technology, you're just not quite far enough along for me, they will pick up the phone again. Because they're interested, they just need to see you hit an inflection point uh, that you're right size for their interest. And just to reiterate, the timing of these processes again, once again, either for the raising of capital yep. or the actual M&A due diligence, and I'm sure there's anomalies, but typically speaking for all those entrepreneurs out there budgeting time for this in the future, what does that typically look like? From the time that you start raising capital to the time that you actually have cash at your balance sheet, six to nine months. If I were an entrepreneur, I would factor in about a year. And same thing on the M&A side for due diligence? Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, so diligence will take about two months, maybe three. The whole process start to finish, you know, might take uh, six to nine, but diligence, you know, I, I would, I would bake in a good two months anyway. So I came up with a bunch of questions during that. So thank you for sharing that. But I want to go back to the life of an IB investment banker. And like you said, on those due diligence processes, where I know you guys are incredibly valuable, those two months, is it the classic sense of what we see in the movies where investment bankers are working 20 hours a day, they're eating Chinese food and sleeping in the office and then waking up the next day and they're putting back on the same suit. I mean, is it that intense? Like what is the lifestyle and life like of an IB mm -hmm. typically or generally uh, throughout just the course of, of the career? And then even more towards those incredible due diligence periods where you guys are the most valuable to a company. Yeah. So the, um, we operate on a number of sayings. And I think it's kind of a good way to live is, is kind of have some slogans to live by. So one of the slogans that we have is, you know, we can never be the reason why a deal doesn't close. And so when you have an interested party, a buyer or investor that's conducting diligence, we're here to move as quickly as possible to help close that deal. Why? Because at any moment, the stock market could tank. Um, you know, there could be a development in the FDA that, that is onerous to the company. And so you need to move quickly to try to close there. In terms of the Chinese food and put on the same suit the next day and stuff like that, I, I think you do get those days. Um, you know, I don't want to admit to eating too much Chinese food, um, but I'd say, I think you used a good word. And, and I'd say that investment banking is less a career and, and more of a lifestyle, I have to say, as you stick with it. So you are on call 24 hours a day. You need, you know, your clients need to have access to you doesn't mean that you're working 24 hours a day. What means is that when the work comes, you're ready to handle it. So for instance, in the diligence process that we're in right now, we're sharing a tracking sheet back and forth with the buyer. We get new requests, we answer some requests, 
we go back to the buyer, we talk about what's needed and where we're at. Um, you know, in that type of thing, that is going 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, I think we're also seeing a little bit of COVID in, uh, have an impact here because I don't think service providers have ever been busy. Our capital markets and our M&A markets are more efficient, in my opinion and experience, than they ever have been. And the reason is, is you can do back-to-back one-hour meetings, you know, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And, and it is really quite effective. So it used to take, you know, a two and a half hour face-to-face meeting that would take three weeks to plan. You know, now we're seeing investors say, hey, actually, I can do a Zoom call for half an hour tomorrow. Can we talk? And so in that way, I think that deals are moving much more quickly and diligence is moving much more quickly as well. So when, you're, when you get ready to transact, if there's something in your mind that you're saying, oh, I didn't file that IP, or I know that you know, I need to undergo a review of, uh, of my financials, or you know, I know that I have a security problem in my IP. The, the, to your best efforts, you're gonna to wanna to try to resolve those issues before diligence. The purchase price and diligence very seldom goes up. And if, it, and if there's any change, it will go down uh, uh, usually because you know, what you thought you had or what you said you had doesn't line up with what's actually there. And so for, for, an, for a banker into your question, you know, the, the 24 seven nature and diligence, yes, absolutely. It, it, that's a nonstop animal. And I wanna to touch back on what we talked about you coming from the nonprofit sector and fundraising, because I, I have some more questions that we're gonna get back into the industry side, but now that we understand what the life like is like for an investment banker, what was that learning curve for you? Yes, you had an MBA. Yes, you understood what it was like to fundraise. So you had a, a, a unique leg up. And to your point, there's those other profiles that were born and bred for this, where they went to school and they were talking about it when they were kids. And that's the family they came from and they became an investment banker. But for all those who may stumble into it or to all those who are listening who might want to start developing their career to get involved into it, what was that learning curve once you joined Outcome Capital, coming from a nonprofit sector, albeit you had an MBA, but starting from ground up? What did that feel like? Yeah, so I wish it was a learning curve. It was more of like a learning wall. It was a vertical <laughs> line. That was my uh, experience in terms of learning. Um, I think the people that do best in investment banks are people that love to learn, are people that love a challenge. Um, I've never been afraid of hard work. Um, it's something that motivates me and the opportunity to, you know, provide for your family should be a great motivator as well. And I think banking provides that, um, you know, myself, when I started the way that I really learned was by, by kind of forcing myself into as many conference calls as I could to listen to how is business done? You know, how do these deals get done? How do the investors talk with the bankers, talk with the buyers, talk with management, talk with corporate counsel? I realized pretty quickly that that, that is the, the role of a, of a banker. Now, when you start in banking, most of your life is in Excel and PowerPoint. And so for me, I, uh, during the day, I do everything I could to be in meetings and to be in conference calls. And at night I would go home and do all the technical work that I needed to. <laughs> um, I think that for me, in terms of learning and what was important, Number one was, was really starting to develop an appreciation for, in the life science industry, there's always certain sectors that get really hot, and there's other ones that, that start to go the other way. And the way that you're going to be successful in banking and as an entrepreneur 
is when you can get on a wave in a, in a particular sector that's on the upswing. And so it was realizing that the most powerful forces in terms of being successful as an entrepreneur aren't your internal desires and efforts, but the external landscape that you live in. And realizing that, you know, if you have, let's say, uh, stroke is an area that's close to my heart, it is a, an unbelievably difficult market to be successful. And so it was hard for me, again, as, as I consider myself an ethical person, when I meet you know, a company and I love the technology, I love the market, I love the space in terms of what it's going to do for patients. But then you look at the business side of it and you realize, actually, it's a really small marketplace. There's not a lot of action in terms of transactions. And so even though you know, it could really help you know, a handful of patients, unfortunately, it's just not enough of a business case there. And that was what takes a few years to really start to um, appreciate and internalize is that, that you got to be mindful of the external forces and, and, and sort of be smart with how you, you, you take those on. For all those startups listening out there, and you have clients that obviously sign up with you guys and you run deals together, and there's companies that you reach out to and vice versa, they reach out to you and it doesn't work out for some reason. If you could get a loud, on a loudspeaker of which you are on right now and just tell the world of, we'll call it med tech, we'll say med tech focus for right now, med tech companies listening to this. If you could just get a clear message across on what you wish those companies that could really use the value add that an investment banker brings, that they likely either push back on during the times that they're talking with you or they simply don't know and all, all those people who simply don't know how to professionally use an investment banker. If you could get on your loudspeaker and say, I wish you all knew this. And if you knew this, you'd likely understand that we're a partner and we're likely going to get the deal done better for you. Just trust us. What would you like to share with them? What are some of those points on being an investment banker out to that world that you wish the, the industry as a whole simply knew as a foundational understanding of an investment banker? I think... Um... The challenge for a banker is to engage with companies that they feel confident that they can be successful with. And so one thing that I do find, um, I don't know if depressing is the right word, but probably a synonym close to it, is that there's sometimes a prevailing idea that bankers' interests aren't aligned with their clients. And in my experience, that couldn't be further from the truth. Outcome capital is only successful, and I am only successful if our clients are successful, if we get the deal done. And so our interests are totally aligned. And so when an investment banker gives advice to a company, um, it's not because the banker is usually just trying to make a buck. It's because they're trying to share a consideration with you that they know is going to be really important. And so I would bring it back to the market again. Um, Venture capitalists don't invest in technologies usually. They first invest in markets and technologies that will optimize market efficiency or inefficiency. Buyers don't buy technologies because they say, hey, it's a little bit better than what's out there. I think I can do okay. They buy technologies and companies because they say, I believe that, that I'm gonna be able to take significant market share with this new technology. And so if there's one element that, that I really wish you know, more uh, entrepreneurs would appreciate is um, 
really open your eyes to the world you live in and look inside and say, is the technology that we're going after, is it really 10x better than, than is out there? If you are, you know, let's say that you're developing a, a surgical uh, uh, stapling technology, go and talk to surgeons that use, you know, your competitors and ask them, is this a problem that you have? And get that market feedback because venture capitalists are gonna go out pretty quickly and talk to the market and say, I have a company that's trying to solve this problem. You also identify as that a big problem. And if the surgeon says, actually, that's like number 12 on my problem list, you know, might I use it? Maybe, but it's not a real big deal to me. Then, then you're not going to get the activity and the action that you want. And so for entrepreneurs, you know, think of how is my product still going to be best in class three, five, seven, ten years from now? Not my product is incrementally better than the options at hand. I want to cut down the conversation and have a hardcore focus on the topic of raising capital for med tech companies. And we're going to split them between early stage and late stage and those services that you offer med tech startups. When should a med tech startup think that they should be using an investment banker? When is it not appropriate? What is too early? So let's focus on the early stage med tech startups that likely are too early for you and how they should be thinking about the market and positioning themselves for an investment banker. And what is too early? What does that mean? Yeah. So um, Giovanni, before I, I joined you today, I actually listened to a few of your other podcasts and um, I was somewhat happy and relieved to hear that what they were saying aligned with my own experience, which is there's always outliers. And so what I'm about to share, I just want everyone to know, these are generalizations. So if you're hearing this and you say, yeah, but there's this company, I know. But let's focus on, you know, typically and generally and statistically, what does that look like? Um, so in terms of when to engage an investment banker, you had a question, I think it was for Jeff Pardo about, you know, series A, B, C, what, you know, what do those rounds correspond with developmental stage? And so typically what you're going to see is your seed round, your friends and family round, is to get your technology to some type of a prototype. Your Series A is typically, and, and that seed round, you know, could be anywhere from about 750000 to maybe $2 million on the high end. But the objective there typically for medtech companies is let's get a prototype in place. Um, then you're going to raise your Series A, and typically you're going to be doing somewhere between about 5 to $10 million. And the objective there should be uh, potentially bringing you through the FDA to FDA approval. For some technologies that might need more developmental time, this first round might only get you to first-in-man studies, clinical studies. Um, but I think the majority of companies are seeking, you know, I want to get that FDA approval. Series B turns into what we would term, you know, growth capital. You have FDA approval. Now you're going to start to maybe try to build a sales channel um, and start to get some revenues and, and start to show market adoption. After Series B is really when it is going to turn into growth capital and maximizing that sales channel. And as the company develops, the valuation depends on different variables. So early on, uh, you know, your Series A, let's say, if you have some person man data, what is your value going to be uh, parallel to? It's, it's the quality of your data. So a company that has, let's say, you know, more patients is always better, better data is always better. 
And so that's how you're valued. Um, once you get into growth capital, then it turns into a revenue multiple typically is gonna to correspond to your valuation. So entrepreneurs need to be mindful too of how do I get value? Now, when do you talk to a banker? That's, that's your question, Giovanni. Um, if investment bankers are in your network, start talking to them immediately. You know, they might be part of that friends and family round that you're trying to raise. They might know people that, that you can speak with. Um, as you start to contemplate your series A, for some companies, an investment bank might be helpful. But for most, it really isn't. And the reason is this. The industry has changed in the last uh, 20 years significantly, I would say, where in the 90s and early 2000s, the only way that an entrepreneur could even get a meeting with a venture capitalist would be to sit with an investment banker or, or a connector um, who had those relationships. Fast forward to today, and, and Giovanni, I really do commend you on this, putting out those investor lists that you have of all the VCs and, and, and who to talk to about what, the market has become much more efficient. So if you're raising that Series A, you are gonna find, in MedTech, you are gonna find a lot of, of investors that expect entrepreneurs to be able to find them, be able to get that interest. Um, it is a good time to speak with an investment banker to get their thoughts on the market and the technology. And also to think of, all right, I wanna meet a lot of bankers in my series A to see who maybe could syndicate my series B. You never wanna be, again, you never wanna, the worst time to look for money is when you need it. And so, you know, after you finish your series A, I'd start thinking about when do we raise that series B? You know, I talked to Tom at Outcome. I enjoyed the conversation. He seemed to know what he was talking about. Let me go call him and let him know I'm gonna be needing some help raising the series B. Where a banker comes in and where we can be helpful is when you need really two things. One, you need a banker to help price the round, as it's called. And you need a banker to help align that pricing with market norms and make sure that investors are, are, are acting in the best interest of the company. One of the big items there is, you know, how much ownership percentage should management retain? That, that always becomes an issue. And that's where a banker for you, again, we're advisors and, and we can share this is typically what, what a med tech uh, company offers and uh, management. And once you introduce a banker into the equation, an investor is also going to know, you know, I need to play nice here, so to speak. Um, also, if a banker is engaged with a company, it usually shows that, hey, people are interested in this company. You know, uh, uh, as bankers, we are success oriented. And so if, if a banker has taken on a company, it usually shows there's people that believe in this opportunity and they're talking to other investors. Um, so on one hand, it's never too early to start conversations with bankers, but on the other hand, it can, you can certainly be too, be too early to engage with an investment bank. So rolling back there, you know, the first item I shared is you want someone who can help kind of bring your deal into market norms. The other side is on the growth capital end is, um, if you're a CEO who's starting sales and running a, sale, a sales team, that's where your focus needs to be. You don't want to take your eye off the ball. So if you can bring an investment banking group to really focus on raising capital uh, or selling the business, um, you know, you're gonna be better off there. You never wanna see you know, revenue start to erode in the middle of a cap raise. <laughs> That's where your investor can say, oh, you know, there's problems here, we need to reprice, retrade, so on and so forth. The last piece of this Giovanni I'd say is important is at Outcome Capital, um, we will run dual process meetings for our clients where we say, listen, you know, you just got your FDA approval, you're starting sales, 
it is a good time to touch the M&A market and see does a strategic want to take you off the table. You're also going to get input from those strategics on are you an attractive acquisition candidate? And if not now, then when? And if, you know, in the future, can we bracket the size of the acquisition price? That is enormously valuable input to go back to the investment community with to those venture capitalists and say, you know, we spoke with Boston Scientific, Medtronic, Abbott. Here's the feedback that we got. And this is the capital we need to hit that milestone. And then we have good reason to believe this is last money in, you're going to be acquired. Rather than saying, hey, I'm running out of money, so I need to raise more, what sounds good? And that is a piece for entrepreneurs that I think that they really need to focus on is when you raise a, a round of capital, it needs to bring you to a milestone. You can't just raise you know, capital for the sake of capital. Um, for those entrepreneurs out there that might be trying to raise a bridge round, just being totally transparent here, that can be a sign of weakness of, hey, you, know, you didn't raise enough in your first round to get you to that milestone. Now you're in this odd sort of bridge phase. What happened? It doesn't guarantee weakness in the company, but it, again, it just kind of raises antennas that entrepreneurs should be ready to answer. I have a couple of short questions that I've heard throughout all of our conversations that I want to demystify for the audience so they know. Is it true that there, and you mentioned it's good to network with investment bankers, so we get that, but in terms of an actual engagement on a capital raise, mm -hmm. is it true that typically less than 20 million in terms of a capital raise is not the ideal client for an investment banker? For most bankers, yeah, the economics just don't work. You know, um, 20 for outcome, you know, 20 million sort of triggers. Yeah, that, that, that is interesting to us. It shows it's a substantial enough raise and we think that we can be helpful. So yeah, I think anytime you're contemplating, you know, north of 15, 20 million, it would be good to talk to an investment banker. And to add a second shade to that, just for clarity, that typical company who might even be calling it Series B, but they're raising 11 million, even though it might be a unique story where it might be a 510K, for example, right? And that Series B of 11 million might be the round that takes them through regulatory clearance and possibly commercialization. That still isn't enough to trigger an investment banker assistance at that point, right? It this is, I think, where it gets to be difficult, Giovanni, because, you know, I'll just share this. I know that, let's say, if you're an artificial intelligence uh, image-based diagnostics company, there's a lot of investors out there that are excited. And so the issue there becomes less company stage and more, um, you know, is it the right technology and the right team to bring to the investor? Um, but yeah, I would say, you know, most bankers, the ones that you want to engage with, once you get to that 15 million spot, that's a good time to talk with a banker because your cap table is going to start to get a bit more complex and, and they can help make sure that you don't have those issues. And that's again, where when you're raising a series A, it's usually in the form of a pretty standard convertible note. So, so it's, it, you know, you don't have much to worry about there. Once you get into 15, 20 million, you know, do we want to tranche the investment? Uh, is it preferred shares? Is it preferred participating? Is it straight common? Do we do another convertible note? You know, what's going to work best? And that is where, you know, if you're not an expert in securities analysis, getting a banker in there is going to help. The second demystifying question, if for some reason 
there is an early stage startup company raising seed capital of a million or 800,000 or series A that is sub 10 million. Um, is it true that venture capitalists look down upon those startups who might be pursuing a third party assistance on raising those smaller rounds? It, um, so I, I revert back to the market is much, you know, the early stage investing market is much more efficient than it used to be. A CEO, first and foremost, needs to keep cash on the balance sheet. They need to be able to raise funds. And so for, for most investors that I know, if the CEO needs the help of an investment banker to raise really early capital, it can be a sign that the CEO just doesn't have what it takes to attract interest. And they're not putting themselves out there enough. They should be able to do this. How is it that they're so busy that they need someone else to do this work? You know, the, the company is just getting legs under itself. It's not as if, you know, the CEO has a, a team of 100 people that they're trying to manage. They should be able to raise that capital. And so, yeah, I would say that, that it can be seen as a little bit of a blemish if you need an investment banker really early on. And I'll say this too, for those entrepreneurs out there, you know, if you're having a really hard time raising capital, and you feel like I've done everything I can, so now I'm going to a banker then you're proving the point. Bankers aren't here to save the day, you know, because you, you've tried and failed. We're here to optimize outcomes that we think are achievable. And so for us, when, when we engage with a client, the most important thing is actually the management team. Is this CEO financeable? That's a question that we ask. Are they open to feedback? Have they mastered their technology? Have they mastered their market? If so, then you're ready to go in front of institutional investors. And we're there to make a wonderful introduction. If you're a first-time entrepreneur and your struggle is, I just, I can't get a meeting, well, for me as an investment banker, I might be thinking, well, maybe there's a problem with your technology too, <laughs> or the market, because, um, you know, if you're trying to raise a million dollars, you should be able to do that. And if you're struggling there, then I think you'd see a lot of venture capitalists say, you got to do more networking. And, and the best CEOs are voracious networkers. They never stop especially if you're raising seed capital, you never know who's going to be able to participate or who knows someone who could help you. And so um, I know COVID has made that difficult, but, but the best CEOs, the most financial CEOs are always known. It's also how they get a lot of good free advice and input. You know, if, you, if you're knocking around and you run into a great IP attorney, you might not be able to service a, you know, $40,000 a month retainer, but maybe you could sign that person onto an advisory board. And, but it's about building relationships. And that's what I would say for CEOs, build as many relationships as you can. Meet with those bankers, meet with those investors um, and start with the relationship. I have one question that I wanna get. I know that you have some words of wisdom that you'd like to share. And if we have time to get to any others, great. If not, this has already been exceptional. Um, we learn a lot from successes and great stories of success. I think we learn even more from failures and watchouts and landmines. From what you can share, you, you've told us about the value of what investment bankers should bring to companies in the market. Yep. Has there is there ever been a story that you can change the name to, like they do in the books, um, that you almost engage with the company? It didn't work out for some reason. And then in your mind, at least, because they didn't engage a bank and they thought they can do it on their own, 
whatever they were supposed to be doing, whether it was an M&A or a capital raise, it fell apart or didn't go as well as it should have. Do you have any of those anecdotal stories? Yeah, you know, um, so I guess said differently, maybe people that we didn't engage with and the reason we didn't engage kind of came true. Is that the question to you? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't have a specific example, but I'd give you a few actually that roll up to the same thing, okay? Yeah. I meet a lot of med tech entrepreneurs who are on the hardware side. So we have to accept that part of the med tech industry now is software. That is just a reality that we need to face. I ran into a lot of uh, engineer-based background CEOs who've been working at Medtronic, Boston Scientific, J&J, enter the name. And they've been working in a specific unit in R&D or engineering for a long time. And they have this idea of, hey, everyone's missing it. There's a way to make this product a whole lot better. And I just can't stand to work another day where we don't build it. So they go out and they start their own company. And they start developing the technology in there. And because they're engineers, they get the prototype done, you know, in light speed. And they're going out and they're trying to talk to investors and, and whomever. And they just can't get it off the ground. And they focus, and, and when they and when they're talking to investors and they talk to us, they focus on the technology. And I and I said this before, and I'll say it again: technology will break your heart time and time again. Because investors aren't investing in technology; they're investing in markets and companies. And so, if you're an engineer and this kind of falls into your wheelhouse, and you think I am that engineer, Tom, that you're talking about, and I have been on this line forever, and I started a company because I knew how to be better. You really need to look yourself in the mirror and be clear about how much better is this product. And again, if you aren't, you know, the the, the something that's going to be relevant in the next three, five, ten years, you need to go back to the drawing board and say, what else can we do? Because you're up for for a lot of disappointment, and and that's what I would say. And and, um, and on the other end, so those are the engineer CEOs. I see people with huge sales backgrounds totally underestimate challenge of the regulatory environment, the reimbursement environment, the engineering challenges, and so on and so forth. I think the takeaway to this is whatever your expertise is, you need to find a business partner that is the perfect counterbalance. So if you're an engineer and, and you really aren't, aren't familiar with a lot of the financials and how markets shift, get someone that has that profile. On the other side, if you're a fantastic salesperson and, and you can raise capital all day, but you might need a little bit of help on making sure that the engineering works, get that person quickly. And that's where Giovanni, I, I would have to admit, you've also had the experience of, you know, you really have to be straight with what are my weaknesses and then build the team from there. Last thing from your side, I know that there was some points that you wanted to get clarified. I don't know if you've covered them throughout all of your notes, et cetera. Um, if you have, great, because we, we went deep in things. If you haven't, there's any last words of wisdom that you definitely want to make sure you get out there, please do. I have one final question after that. Yeah. You know, so I did, and it kind of piggybacks, I think, on your last question, kind of things to avoid. So one thing I'll, I'll share is this. Um, I find a lot of uh, younger companies that will take advice from anyone willing to give it to them. And when you're a young company, um, you know, it's good that they will talk to anyone that you can. The second that someone's advice goes beyond their direct experience, they can become a very dangerous person in your life. 
And so this reverts back again to what our sharing of, if you're getting input and advice from someone, make sure that they have that experience. And so if you're listening to someone about, you know, regulatory uh, strategy, do they actually have a background that lends themselves to being able to advise on that? So if you were to ask me, you know, hey, Tom, uh, we're developing this new software, you know, give me your input on, on, on how strong it is. I'm not a technologist. And I'm not going to begin to offer an opinion there because I want you to value my advice when I give it to you. And that advice is steeped in experience. So what I can talk about is, you know, there aren't a lot of deals, for instance, that are using uh, Wi-Fi as their preferred technology. They're migrating to other, you know, CAD M1 cellular technologies or things like that. Um, but be very careful about who you're taking advice from. I think the other thing I, I would focus on too is when you pitch your company, tell a story. People really do um, embrace stories and narratives. So when you go to pitch your company, don't start with the technology. Start with, here's the market that we're in, and here's the problem in that market. Here's the technology that we develop, and here's how it answers that, that problem. And here's the roadmap, how we're gonna get there to solve that problem. The first piece of that roadmap is what I'm calling my series A, and I'm inviting you to participate in this journey with us. And that's the, um, and that's a story that people attach themselves to. And to a venture capitalist, most of them are thinking, wow, this is someone that is good at storytelling, is good at raising capital, they can read the room, this person's financial, I believe in the vision. And, um, and so practice your story. That's really, uh, that is really helpful for groups. My last question, and we'll leave off there is, the state of the market. So you've mentioned efficiencies, especially with COVID, right? Where it might've been challenging for more seed rounds, but at the same time, I've heard you tell this numerous times where pre-COVID you'd ask for a meeting and the investors would be like, sure, in three weeks from now, after everyone can get in the same room together, all of a sudden COVID was like, let's take a 30 minute phone call tomorrow. How does that work for you? So there were some efficiencies that did actually occur after the white noise settled out, but where are we now pre-COVID the density of COVID and now this semi-crack door of opening the world COVID where some things are coming back, some things are forever changed, et cetera. But what is the landscape of the medtech ecosystem slash market look like now? And what can we expect for the remainder of the year? So, um, so it's my belief that the medtech industry is in for a bit of a renaissance. Um, I think that uh, biopharma has really been sucking the oxygen out of a lot of investors for the last uh, 20, 25 years. And um, in medtech, you know, I think it's our day here and today. Biopharma investing is always going to be there. It's always going to be big dollars. But there's a few tailwinds on medtech pre-COVID that I think COVID has only accelerated. And a lot of people are going to know what I'm about to share here. So one... Um, Cloud computing has enabled scalability that, that has been unparalleled in medtech. Two, sensors now are more uh, uh, accurate and can last longer with less battery power than ever before. And three, we now have a regulatory environment that is embracing technology in a way that we haven't seen before. And I mean digital technology. And so, you know, I, one of the, the transactions that I thought was really interesting was when uh, ResMed uh, acquired Propeller Health. That was really the first digital health, uh, or, or one of the biggest digital health deals that was done in, in digital therapeutics. Now, what, what was so cool about that? This was taking an all, all but dead technology of the inhaler 
layering into that, you know, a sensor to track, you know, how much medication is the person taking, when are they taking that medication, so on and so forth. And providing immediately actionable data to physicians and patients. And so where I think that that's amazing is we took a dead segment, added some digital technology to it, and the value profile totally changed. And so for medtech entrepreneurs, I do think it's, it's going to be an opportunity out there to look at what are some dead segments that we could breathe life into with new technology. And, um, and I do, I think that we see, see uh, investors taking, taking a piece of that. In terms of, you know, what are we seeing, their investors have become, life science investing has defaulted to one of the most exciting asset classes post-COVID. Why? Well, I think on, on, if you look at capital markets right now, you really don't want to invest in, in, in uh, hospitality. Entertainment has become difficult. Um, I, I think that technology is always going to be hot, but we've even seen industrials start to take a dip as well. And so asset managers look to life science venture investing as, um, I see this industry as something that's going to be on the uptick. Um, I see this as a safe place to put some bets because as COVID dissipates, my investments are going to start to, to uh, take off after that. Um, so investors are flush with cash. Investors are, I think, always getting more and more savvy about what technologies work and what doesn't. And so that is where I think it's harder to raise capital. Um, and there's also an end here too of I think strategics are, are trying to fill their pipelines now. They've become less uh, EPS sensitive with analysts. Analysts are a little bit more patient with, we wanna see you refresh that pipeline come out with new product in the next year or two. Taken together, um, I think it's a great time to be a med tech entrepreneur, absolutely. Um, Vice President of Outcome Capital, I wanna say thank you very much for your time, for obviously your words of wisdom, advice, counsel, insights. This is MedTech Money, demystifying raising capital. Thank you so much, Tom. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.